you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke uh, chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. Luke chapter 1, 57 to 80. So Advent 2020, we're looking at peace. Uh, Many of you, most of us, I don't know, are peace is being threatened, troubled because of what's going on in the world. And in 1 Timothy 2, prayers and intercessions are, and thanksgiving are urged for all kinds of people. And then he further defines all kinds of people are those who are in high positions. We all know that. We've heard that before. You've been exhorted, especially every political season, to make sure you're praying for those in authority over us. And, uh, but I think what we oftentimes ignore is the purpose for that. Why are Prayers urge for those in high positions that we, the church, may lead a peaceful and quiet life. So the purpose for which the Holy Spirit has urged prayers for all in high position is so that his church, his beloved people could have peace and quiet and lead godly and dignified lives in every way. And then he says, and this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And so the peace of his church through the prayers of his church for their rulers that gives us the peace and quiet is pleasing in the sight of God. And so we're focusing on peace. Last week in Isaiah 9, we saw the Prince of Peace brings peace to our lives in ways that often trouble us, but leads to ultimate peace for us. This week, I want to um, just talk about the way of peace. So it's not going to be so hard as last week. And the next Sunday, God willing, we'll be in Luke 2, the actual birth of Christ, focusing on the angels who speak of peace on earth. Let me read Luke 1. 57 to 80. The sermon mainly falls on 67 to 80, but I want to give you a bit of context. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. So much for feminism. What a courage, uh, what a courageous woman. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by his name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called. Remember, he uh, isn't able to speak. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open, his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation 
for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. God, remember us. We're your servants. You have made us hope in your Son, and yet often we have affliction. And so God, teach us in our afflictions of your promises that give us life. We do not turn away from your word. We want to think on your rules of old and take comfort in them. Help us to have indignation at those who forsake your law. And so God bless us now. May your blessings fall on us that we may keep your precepts. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week I asked when the first promise of the Son of God was given in the Bible and the kids rightly answered that was given to um, Adam and uh, Eve. <laughs> a little tougher question for the kids. When was the first time the birth of John the Baptist was promised? Any kid get that one? Huh? I think you're all so smart. Any kid? Anybody? No? Oh, I got you. Any older kid? Any adult? All right. What do you got? Yes, sir. Isaiah, way to go, Ethan. All right, so uh, Isaiah, 700 years before John the Baptist was born, Isaiah 43, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Then in Malachi, about 400 years, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek shall come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this day had been awaited for several hundred years, and it's here. John the Baptist's birth was miraculous. Jesus' birth is unlike all others. He was born of a virgin. John's, John the Baptist, wasn't as incredible as Jesus, but it was still miraculous. In chapter 1, verse 7, it's noted that Elizabeth was barren, and they were advanced in years. It's not a kindly way to say old She's beyond uh, able to have children, and she was never able to have children. The angel Gabriel, we see in 119, the angel's name is revealed, appears to Zechariah. He was in the temple serving, and he sees a vision of this angel and hears that he will have a son, and that he shall name his name John. And in verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Wouldn't that be a good thing for your children to have is their 
future, to turn many to the Lord. Well, as we've noted, Zechariah doubts. Gabriel silences him for nine months. He's not able to speak. We see that in verse 20. Uh, Now, in verse 20, he's silent. Um, There's promise to have a son. Can I learn a quick lesson here? Sometimes you ask questions or we have this debate in our minds. Okay, so God has said this thing will be. So we know that God is sovereign, right? Whatever he promises will come true. And so we don't have to do anything, right? John, or, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth didn't have to do anything because he promised the son, so it's just going to happen, right? doesn't matter what they do. The promise is just going to come because God promised it, right? So sometimes we do this. We want to set in opposition God's sovereignty to our activity. No, John or Zachariah and Elizabeth had to do what normal couples have to do to have a children. Because they had faith in God's promise. And so God promises don't remove our responsibility, our activity. They encourage it. You don't set up in opposition God's sovereignty, God's promises to our activity. No, God's promises, God's sovereignty should encourage our activity. So, in 1 Timothy 2, it says that we should pray, again, for all in high positions that we can have peace. There's a, our activity connected to a peace, a promise of peace. And so that should encourage your activity. God is sovereign. He wants the peace of his church. And so we pray. So there's a, a little lesson there. The normal way that God answers your prayers is by you praying and then getting to work. So pray and then get to work. That's what Zachariah and Elizabeth do. So Zachariah and Elizabeth have faith and they are granted a son. So John the Baptist is born. We see that in verses 57 to 66. She has a son. They rejoice. Notice that all these relatives and neighbors gather around. They rejoice with her. Um, You just think there's probably other women in this circle who aren't able to have children or maybe past childbearing age, and it's a grief for them, and yet they are careful and rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. It's It's a wonderful gift to have those around you rejoice with. The mother, as I've said, uh, names him John. Very bold, very courageous. Uh, John, the name John means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh has been gracious. What a, what a fitting name. So those of you who are still having children or will have children, it's good to consider thoughtfully the names for your children um, and uh, name them names that you that are meaningful to them, maybe biblical names and so on. So the father writing on a tablet says his name is John. So we see here in Scripture, what we see throughout the Bible is the glory of God in babies. So we've had lots of babies recently in our church. There's a new mom right there. Uh, and uh, it's glorious. And I want to encourage it. We're to fill the earth, subdue it, to have children who love the Lord. And so I want to encourage that. But there's glory in children. There's glory in the children in the service. Kids, we're very glad that you join us in here for worship, especially those little, little ones that moms and dads have to hold. Uh, so many times they think they're distractions. I can't take in the Word of God. And yet I was 
One of the things I enjoy during singing is a lot of parents or grandparents or others are holding the children facing you as you're singing. What a great thing that you're doing for that child to sing with some joy on your face, teaching the child with the joy of the Lord. Even from the young age, you don't think that they know what's going on. They're listening, they're taking it in, they're seeing your emotion, they're hearing your voice. You can see them lock eyes with you. It's very uncomfortable usually, right? Little kids don't know that they can't stare. They stare at you, they're learning from you. And, and so we see that delight here in these verses. And so the glory of a baby in this text is teaching us what the Bible continues to teach you, that children are a blessing of the Lord. And one child in particular would go before the child who would be the Savior of all mankind. God announced the coming of his son through the birth of another son. Delightful. Do not listen to this world's hatred of children. Do not go along with it. Continue to have children and love them and thank God for them. So there's two parts to our text, 67 to 80. There's a song, it's a, it's a prophecy, it's a song of sorts. The first half, 67 to 75, is Zechariah singing and prophesying a praise to God for God's salvation. And then in 76 to 80, He's holding his son, and he speaks directly to his son, and you, child. And he prophesies his son's role in the coming Savior's salvation. So that's what I do. Let's just take it in two parts. Let's take it in two parts. But first, um, the birth of Jesus is spectacular. It's phenomenal. Angels singing and prophesying, barren women past childbearing age having children, virgin, a virgin having a child, all of it fulfilling promises that are hundreds of years old. You believe that? This is the sum of our salvation, this. This seemingly unscientific, supernatural, miraculous salvation from on high to us. Part of our Christian confession is we believe that a virgin had a child and that there is only salvation through faith in him. So do you believe this? I mean, do you actually have living, real, enduring faith that the one that John the Baptist came to prepare the way for, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, is the only salvation from God for you to save you from hell, to have eternity with him. And so kids, do you believe this? Kids, do you believe this? Because you know you're born... Apart from this, you're, you're not born with faith latent inside of you for this. This is something you yourself have to grab hold of. And if you don't, you will perish eternally. You will. So this is set before you, this story that you know very well, so that you can be confronted lovingly again with the reality 
that apart from faith, your own faith, not your parents' faith, not other people's in this church's faith, not because you go to this church's faith, your faith, your real faith, if this is not your life, you do not have life. You must believe. Zechariah, it's noted, is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies. He sings of the coming salvation. He sings of salvation. This is why we sing in church. We sing Christmas hymns, and what are all the Christmas hymns all about? This. They're singing of God's salvation. So Zechariah sings the same song. He sings of the promised salvation coming. He sings of the prophet that precedes the Savior, who is his son. Wouldn't that be blow, your mind blowing? My son is the one promised in Isaiah and Malachi. My son is the one coming before the Savior. And so he speaks of this salvation. And in verse 79, he speaks of salvation as a way of peace. So what we're considering this Advent, this Advent 2020 of peace, that his son purpose on earth would be to guide God's people's feet onto the way of peace. And that peace in the first half is salvation through the Son of God. So what is this salvation? Let's just look in this first half and draw out a few things that speak of what this salvation actually is and so then what is our peace? In verse 68, John or Zechariah prophesies, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited. He has visited. God himself comes to save his people. This is not entrusted to another. No angel is sent to save us. No other mortal born of a mother through the procreating work of a father is sent to save us. God himself, the God of Israel, the Lord God, the eternal God, visits. He himself does it. So that's intimate. It's God himself coming. Your salvation is a work of God visiting, drawing near. He's not a God on high. This is maybe the one reality other than Christ himself that differentiates Christianity from everything else on the earth, that God himself comes. He doesn't send a prophet. He, he comes. And salvation is himself. It's not agreeing to five things. It's not praying a certain amount of prayers a day. It's not repeating a certain phrase or sentence. It's salvation in him. You have to come to him. He comes to you and you come to him. It's 
God our Father sending His Son so that we might be His children. And it is in Him then who visits us that our peace is found. Your peace is found in Him who visits you. And He visits in order to save us from our enemies in verses 71 and 74 that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of him who hate us. And in verse 74, being delivered from the hand of all of our enemies. What are the enemies? What are the enemies that God himself visits in order to save you from? What are the enemies that he delivers you from so that you can have peace? Well, typically in the Bible, there's three enemies. The first is your flesh. You in Adam, your carnal, fleshly, fallen desires that war against the truth of God and against obeying the Father, it's, he saves you from you. Romans 1, it's by God's Spirit that we put to death our fleshly desires. So that's the first enemy. When Christ died, he took you down with him. He crucified your flesh so that you don't have to be enslaved to it anymore. And so that, that means we're forgiven of all of our past sins for those of faith in Christ. And the power of sin is broken in your life so you, don't, so you no longer have to walk in sin in the present. How many of you still have desires that are against God? How many of you right now have fallen carnal desires in your heart that you're wrestling with right at this moment? How many of you have yielded them this past week? God sent his son so you don't have to yield anymore. You can tell them like the angel told Zechariah to shut up. Leave you alone. You're not bound to that anymore. Christ is your Lord. The second enemy is the devil. Flesh and the devil. The devil is our mortal enemy. There's no redeeming him, nor all of his angels who fell and became demons. They hate God and they hate God's people. I think Satan wanted the place that the Son of God would occupy. Satan wanted the place that we would occupy. And so he hates you. He prowls around like a lion waiting to devour and destroy you. He hates your children. He hates the church. He is the enemy. And when Christ died and rose, we read in Colossians that the devil was put to open shame. The devil has been stoned. Jesus said that he came to free the captives of the strong man, but he can't free them until the strong man is bound. He's bound. He's in chains. And in the book of Revelation, we read that he will finally, once and for all, at the coming of the Son again, be destroyed forever. The devil has been destroyed. And then lastly, the world. The three enemies in the Bible are your flesh, the devil, and the world. 
the world typically isn't just the physical creation in the Bible. It's those who have arrayed in opposition to God and to his people. St. Augustine wrote a book, The City of God and the City of Earth. There's this, not two kingdoms necessarily in the world, but there are those, the church, who love God and are learning to live for his purposes. And there are those who love themselves, who love their own way, who do as their own wicked hearts desire, and they hate God. This world is passing away. It will be remade. And Christ's people, those who love him, those who turn to him for the salvation, will inherit this world and live for him forever. And so he has destroyed those enemies. It's done. It's finished. To what purpose? To what purpose has God visited you and saved you from these enemies, the flesh, the devil in this world? For what purpose? So you can go and live however you want to live? No, serve him. See in verse 74 that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. The purpose for which God sent his son in the world to deliver you from your flesh, the devil in the world, is so that you can serve the Lord with fear and holiness and righteousness all of your days. This is for what you were created. God made you in his image so that you could serve him. That's what your existence is, is for. That's why you have a body with a soul created for this singular purpose. This is that which gives you meaning. This is why the world is so meaningless because there is no thought to this. There is no longer any knowledge of this. This world is all that you see. There's no God. There's no meaning. We're just the result of years of evolutionary process and at the end the lights just go out and there's nothing. And so live for yourself. Serve yourself. The only truth that is really true is what's true for you and what you feel. And no, at no time in the world has there ever been any more meaninglessness, hopelessness. And so we know that we have meaning. We have purpose. We have real meaning and purpose. Men are created to serve the Lord and being heads of their home and heads of the church and heads of society to protect and keep and lead. We have real purpose men. Women are created to be helpmeets to their men and to the church and to this world. You have real meaning, sisters. Notice that. In serving the Lord all of your days with fear and holiness and righteousness. Notice that. You don't get to determine in of yourself what your service looks like. God determines in his word what is holy and righteous. And you are freed by God to serve him like that. That's actually freedom. To serve the Lord holy and pure and righteously, that is actually freedom. How many of you in your life have lived to your own ways 
and finally woke up to the slavery that you were in. You thought you were living freely and you woke up one day and finally realized I am just a slave to my own carnal desires and they do not satisfy. They only lead to death and I finally realize it. Freedom is in verse 74, serving the Lord for which you were created with fear and holiness and righteousness all your days. And all your days don't end when you end here on earth. All of your days go on for all of eternity. And what will you do in all of eternity? Serve the Lord. Enjoy delighting in doing whatever he has created you to do. And it's not going to be singing on a cloud with a harp singing. Some of you may be swinging a hammer in eternity and liking it. So that's the goal of the salvation. And that's actually peace. We have a part in this work. Isn't that wonderful? God didn't save you to set you on the sidelines. There's no bench warmers in the kingdom of God. There's no participants in the choir that are kept in the back and asked to sing a little quieter. You all got a a voice. You all have a part. You all have a, a role. That's the kind of king we serve. We're useful to him. So that's the salvation. In the second half then, in verses 76 to 80, you have this very tender, very intimate beginning. So Zechariah is holding his son this entire time. He's holding his newborn boy, John. And he's praising the Lord for the salvation. And then he turns. And you... And you, you know, he's addressing everyone, and then it's like everyone just goes away. And he looks at his son. And you, child. It's very tender. It's very intimate. You've experienced this, right? The wonder of holding your child, and the hope, and the expectation, and the fears that start coming. And you, child, this reminds us as fathers how important our words are to our children. Reminds you as a man how important your words are in this world. Reminds us that the father once spoke over his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Reminds us what our heavenly father speaks over us. That we are his children. That he rejoices over us with singing. What Zechariah says is that his son came to be a prophet. So John the Baptist was the last of the prophets, this office of prophets in the Bible. You have prophets, Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah and Elisha and Malachi and then John. He was it. And prophets were always declaring that God's people are in darkness. They need salvation. 
Verse 79, he's preparing. John is going to prepare the way of the salvation from on high to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of God whereby the sunrise shall visit from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Darkness is equated with death. This is what sin has given us, that we die because of sin. Salvation then is salvation from this eternal death. Death is separation from God. Can you imagine the terrors of that? God is life. God himself is joy. God is peace. He is existence itself. To be separated from him is terror. It's darkness. Have you ever been in darkness? I mean, the kind of darkness where there's no light switch to turn on. And you don't know when light is coming next. Imagine being buried alive. You know, before the kind of medical advances we have, they sometimes bury people with a little string attached to them in the grave that went to a bell in case they were wrong. You heard a little bell tinkling in a <laughs> cemetery. I made a mistake. It's a terror to be buried alive to be in darkness, no hope of light. That's what we were before Christ saved us. And we didn't know it. We had death. We were under God's judgment. We were headed to an eternal separation from him who is life and light and joy and peace and satisfaction and everything good that we want. That's what you were. And we were sitting there Prophets don't waste words. And there we sit in darkness. We were satisfied there. It was our dwelling place. It was our home. But he came as a sunrise. He came to give light. It's not something we could do for ourselves. It's not something we want to do for ourselves. We love our sin. And St. Augustine struggled mightily with sexual sin and temptation. And at one time he prayed, God, take this from me, but not yet. Right? I know that this is death, but I love it. I know that this is hell, but I need it. Take it from me. I don't want death, but I still want it. And the tender mercy of God, note that please, the tender mercy of God is to show us all that we're golem. It's to awaken you to the terrors of you and to rip out of your hand to a heart your precious sin to implant in you a heart that loves him. That's the tender mercy of God, that he forgives all of your sins. It's tender, it's not harsh, it's not law, it's not demanding, it's not mean, it's not lying, it's not deceiving, it's caring, it's kind, it's strong. It's mercy, it's pity, it's care, 
That's Christ. The tender mercy of God is Christ. That's it. We're on death row. The heavenly judge has sentenced you to death. You're sitting in the cell with one window that only can look at the gallows. Tomorrow morning you'll hang there. And that's all you can see. And that's all that your reality is. And then the cell door opens and the judge in tender mercy says you're free. My son hung. The one born of a virgin, the one who is God and man, hung in your place. You're free. That's Christmas. That's peace. And notice what Zechariah did. Zechariah serves as a reminder. Nine months he was silenced. How many years had it been before Zechariah that God had refused to speak to his people? Anybody know? When was the last time they heard the voice of God from the mouth of a prophet inspired by the Holy Spirit? Before Zechariah. 400 years. God would, re- would not speak to his people. 400 years. And then he spoke. And what did Zechariah do? He praised God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He blessed them. He spoke of Christ. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Praise his holy name. My son, my child, know this path of peace. God has visited. He is the most high God, and he has come down to save us. He is our peace. Peace from death, peace from hell, peace from your flesh, peace from this world, peace with others. God present with us. He has not left us. We no longer will ever suffer 400 years or nine months of silence from God because his son has come, because the spirit has come, because we are being remade in his image. So let's use our voices to bless the Lord. Let's use our voices to guide others onto the path of his eternal peace. God has given us light. We once sat in darkness. We now have him. Let's pray. So, Father, help us to, though we know this truth, though we've heard it before, grant us wonder, faith, joy to receive the news again of your peace and how you've accomplished it, that we may no longer walk in darkness that we may no longer walk in our flesh, that you would, by your Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body, that we may no longer fear the devil, listen to his temptations and lies, that we may no longer live for this world, which is passing away, but for you. We may serve you with fear and holiness and righteousness, which is true freedom. And so guide our uh, feet onto the paths of peace in your Son all the more. And now, O God, free our lips to sing your praise name. Amen.